back in 1997, the Titanic movie had just come out and people could not stop talking about it. You all remember that? Not only that, but people were going to the theaters to see it over and over and over again, and it was not a short movie. I remember a political cartoon from Newsweek that showed a long line of people waiting to get in to see that movie. There was a middle-aged couple, and they were having this excited conversation about how they couldn't wait to see those wonderful special effects for when the Titanic struck the iceberg and sunk. In line behind them were two little boys who said, man, don't you hate it when people spoil the ending? (laughs) Some stories are so well known to us that we think they're beyond spoiling. I'm guessing that few people who went to see that movie were thinking that the ship was going to arrive in port on schedule. They went to have a glance at how this particular story would unfold. As we travel through the liturgical year, we anticipate Christ's birth, we follow his life and ministry, we stand vigil at the cross, and we rejoice in the resurrection so that we too might gain a deeper glance at what all of this means, who this man is, and and how he matters in our lives. The question that Jesus asks in Mark 8 is one that should reemerge for us regularly. Who do you say that I am? Knowing Jesus' life story like we do, it's really hard for us to see it like those two little boys online. As a child of God for whom the life of Christ holds immediacy, uncertainty, and infinite possibility. Because when we read scripture, we usually read it backwards. We start with all the things that we already know, the ending of the story, the faith statements of the early church, and the thousands of years of theological debate that followed and continue to follow. We've been reading it like this for so long that it can be hard to read it forwards from the perspective of those who lived it. It can be challenging to remember the place for doubt, for evolving understandings, for faith that doesn't know where it might land. On this end, this morning I'd like to look at some of the titles of Jesus that we find in Scripture, that he is Lord, Christ, and Messiah, Son of Man, Son of God, and try to recapture what those might have meant to the people who walked alongside Jesus. In the Gospel lesson from John this morning, it's still Easter Sunday. That makes two weeks of Easter for us already. Jesus had appeared to Mary Magdalene. She ran from that place and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. It's already evening when Jesus comes to see the disciples and they're locked away, hiding. He breathes his peace on them. He blesses them and he leaves. But Thomas wasn't there. The disciples tell him, we've seen the Lord. But it wasn't enough for Thomas. When we read this story, we're we're a little astounded, aren't we? I mean, Thomas had been there through all of it, all the miracles he witnessed, the signs and wonders, the healings, and then because he didn't happen to be in the room that one time, he couldn't believe the testimony of 10 guys and at least one lady. What gives? Well, 
When we hear Lord, we think the Lord our God. When we proclaim Jesus is Lord, we are talking about Jesus' divinity and his total claim on our lives. But there's a decent chance that that's not what the disciples understood when they heard people saying, Lord. The word Lord is used over 300 times in the Old Testament to talk about an earthly king or a master or a ruler and only 30 times to talk about God. In, in biblical times, Lord was something of a courtesy title for anyone who was in a position of power or respect over you, so sort of like we use sir today. Applying the title of Lord to God was more in the line with the phrase Lord of Lords that we find throughout the Bible in Deuteronomy and Psalms, 1 Timothy and Revelation. It's just like using lords and ladies in the medieval period. No one thought that the Lord of the manor meant God. It was the guy who owned the house. When we think of it this way, Jesus' warning in Matthew 7.21 makes a little more sense. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Recognizing that Jesus is due honor and respect is not the fullness of our faith. And so we move deeper into Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? We might answer, you are the Messiah, which in Greek is Christ. They mean the same thing. This is the answer that Martha gave Jesus when Lazarus had died, and he asked her if she believed in the resurrection and the life, that everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. When we hear Messiah, we think of God incarnate come to be our Savior, fully divine and fully human. Messiah literally means anointed one. In the Old Testament, priests, prophets, and kings were anointed into God's service. Even Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia, was one of God's anointed ones. Though he did not worship God, he let the people of Israel return home after the exile and decreed that the temple in Jerusalem would be rebuilt. But after this time, the people started to receive revelation about God's Messiah, different from the ones that came before. He was one who would descend from King David's line, one who would reunify the 12 tribes of Israel, one who would usher in an age of peace all over the world. Their theology was that the Messiah would be a powerful political leader, like we talk about on Palm Sunday. They were expecting a person like David. This person would be chosen by God to judge fairly and conquer all oppressors. And so by Jesus' day to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, this man that they had known and trusted, was a huge leap of faith. It showed that they pinned great hope on him and that they believed him to be the cornerstone and the climax of all of history. But amazingly enough to us, in their time, they could still believe that he was the Messiah but not God, just an important person. And we hear titles, the Son of Man and the Son of God, and here surely we think we would see this means Christ, fully human and fully divine. A Son of Man has been a controversial and debated title since Jesus' day. Some say it means that he was fully human. Some say it is another way of saying Messiah, and others say it's sort of an everyman reference, just that he was a guy. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man when he refers to his coming in glory, the suffering that he faces in his life, and the work that he does on earth. Son of God is no less confusing because in the Old Testament it's used to refer to angels. And in Luke 3.38, believe it or not, Adam 
Adam is called son of God. I somehow missed this. I just found that this week. So this son of God business is further complicated when we see that Alexander the Great and Caesar Augustus, Augustus called themselves son of God. It seems like they used this title to speak about how significant their lives were, how their rule was by divine right, and that meant that they were beyond the pale of normal little human life. The Gospels tell us that a voice from heaven calls Jesus, my son, and after he walks on water, his disciples tell Jesus, you really are the son of God. But still, it is possible that living in the context that the disciples did, they might have meant that to say, this is an extraordinary guy. His life is unparalleled. They still didn't get it. Thomas may well have been struggling with everything that he had seen and heard. He wanted to know Jesus more. He wanted more than to just see him how everyone else saw him. Really, who among us would have the audacity to echo Thomas in saying, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nail and my hand in his side, I will not believe. Now, the translation that we have is a pretty polite one. The King James Version said, unless I thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. That verb is balo. It's the same verb used to cast your nets fishing. It's the same verb Satan used to tell Jesus to cast him down, cast himself down from the spire of the temple to test his faith. It's used to cast out demons. It can imply something done with great speed and force or to letting something go, not caring where it falls, to strike, to release, to throw. In this case, Thomas's request isn't a violent one but it's an intense one, a purposeful one. Unless I can be thoroughly, fully immersed in what you say is Jesus come again, I will not believe. The Gospel of John does not tell us how the other disciples reacted to this rather extreme request. It does not tell us Thomas's state of mind, what he poured over, the questions he asked God in prayer. After this shocking request and really a requirement that he laid on Jesus, a week passed. Thomas fully and unapologetically voiced his doubts before the disciples, before his closest friends, before quite possibly the bulk of anyone alive who still believed in Jesus at all. And then Jesus came. And Jesus didn't scold him for wanting to get deeper, for for wanting to get closer. Jesus sees the bold courage of Thomas wanting so desperately to strengthen his faith, and he's rewarded for that. Jesus says, peace be with you. Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt but believe. And then it is Thomas, not Peter, not any other well-behaved disciple. He is the one who makes the first uniquely Christian statement of faith in our scripture. He answers Jesus, my Lord and my God. 
in that instant, he shattered the efforts of those around him and those to come who would claim that Jesus was only a very important teacher, or he was only a miracle worker, or only a prophet. Thomas wanted more, and boy, did he get it, because he is the first one to know that this Jesus, Lord Christ, Messiah, Son of Man, and Son of God, was also undeniably fully God. He finally understood what Jesus meant when he said in John 10.30, the Father and I are one. Thomas's doubts did not define him because he did not fear them. He laid them at Jesus's feet and Jesus multiplied his faith. And in response to Thomas, Jesus blesses all of us. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. In this simple phrase, Jesus tells us that it's okay for us to be in process. It's okay if we're still figuring it out, if we're struggling or doubting or unsure. The blessing comes when we cast ourselves before Christ, when we humble ourselves and ask to believe. He is our Savior. He is our God. He is our path to peace. And so may we be blessed with the courage of Thomas and the deepening of our faith. Amen.